invite, if you would, please take your uh, Bible to Psalm chapter number 18 tonight. Psalm chapter number 18. Uh, I want to say, first of all, thank you for being here tonight. Um, you, you know, it is your choice. Nobody made you come. And uh, I do appreciate your investment in the service and in our church. I want, to, I want you to know that I care greatly for you and your family. Um, while I was gone, I thought about this church. I thought about what an opportunity we have here to minister to this community. Uh, the people that are in this building tonight are some of the best people in the entire world, in my opinion. And uh, some of you have been here many, many years, and you've laid the foundation for those of us uh, who are a little bit younger than you. And uh, some of you have only been here just a few years. And uh, regardless, you are just as important to this church as anybody in this building. And uh, I'm so thankful for the opportunity I have to stand and preach to you tonight. I'm also thankful or looking forward to what God's going to do with this church in the future. And man, I do believe he's got great plans for this church. And I hope that you share in that vision. Uh, I do believe Joshua Baptist Church is the answer for Joshua, uh, for Johnson County. I believe there's other good churches here, but I believe just personally, I believe God's going to use this church in a mighty way uh, in the upcoming days. So Psalm chapter number 18 tonight. Oh, I also want to say, man, thank you if you were part of the choir this morning. I think I counted 38 people in there, and uh, and I was probably missing some because some were a little shorter than others. But uh, uh, I was uh, really, really uh, happy to see your involvement in the service. And uh, if you just are a participant in the service by sitting in the pew, well, there's nothing wrong with that. But you know you can join the service many other ways. You can give in the offering. You can be a part of the uh, choir. You can be the best greeter that we have in the church. There's many ways to be a part of this church and the service. And I hope that you're willing to partake in those. But thank you for those that sung in the choir this morning. I thought you did a great job. And I look forward to Brother Sean working with the choir and, and improving it even still. All right, Psalm chapter 18 tonight. I've got to be honest, I'm very excited to preach. Um, when a preacher is unable to preach, it just burns his water. And then when he has the opportunity to get back and preach, it is the most exciting time. So I tell you, you may get a humdinger tonight or you could get a dud. I've not decided yet and the Lord hasn't showed me yet, but I am excited to preach. Psalm chapter 18, verse number 50. Now, the Bible says here, and I want you to pay great attention to the very first two words of this verse, but this will be our, our main portion of Scripture tonight. Verse number 50 of Psalm chapter 18 says, Great deliverance giveth he to his king, and showeth mercy to his anointed, to David and to his seed forevermore. Now, this past week, I was I had the opportunity to go up and spend some time with a friend of mine, and uh, I, I was trying to read through the entire book of Psalms, and as I read through each chapter, I was trying to make a summation in, in one phrase. So I was just trying to sum up what the, was going on in the chapter in just a, a few words, and, and I was going to just kind of do a study that way. And I was doing really good. I was rifling through them, chapter 1, chapter 2, Got all the way through chapter 17, and when I arrived at chapter 18, for some reason, the Lord just would not let me go past it. I read the chapter, and with every word I read and every phrase that I read, it just, it was like the Lord was saying, Andrew, this is applicable to you. 
This is means, this is something that is meaningful to you. You need to be paying attention here. And with every phrase I read, it just opened up a new level of depth for me that I've never seen in this chapter before, although I've read it many, many times. And so I wanted to proceed with my goal, but I, I just could not get past chapter 18. And so what I began to do is read chapter 18 over and over and over again. And each time it spoke to me, and each time it meant something to me. And uh, then I kind of, as sitting there reading my Bible, the Lord just kind of said, Andrew, if it means this much to you, how many other people would it mean much to? I mean, if it means this much to me, I'm sure there's others like me. I'm sure there's other people that need what I need to hear. And, and I hope tonight to be a blessing to you. We're going to speak on this topic. And we'll probably, for the next few weeks, look at this chapter. But we're going to speak on this subject, Great Deliverance. Now, I don't know about you, but occasionally, I need some great deliverance. Occasionally, I get over my head in, in issues. And uh, I try coming up with means that I can solve the problem, but I come up short. And it seems like the further I get into the problem, the deeper I get into the problem. And the more I begin to drown and suffocate. And, and, and maybe you don't understand what I'm talking about. And if not, I'm, I'm very happy that you've had that type of life, but I just occasionally get overwhelmed with this life. And sometimes I need some great deliverance. Now, I tell you the next few stories, not for your sympathy, not for your uh, uh, consolation or anything like that. And I'm not even telling you this, these few stories uh, so that you can say, well, Brother Andrew, you've gone through a hard time. Or you can say, Brother Andrew, your time is nothing compared to others. I even hesitated to tell them at all, but I want to give you perspective on where my heart is as I preach this sermon tonight. A few weeks ago, we had our daughter, Bailey, uh, three now, I think, maybe four, who knows? They, they grow fast and you don't even keep track. But uh, uh, we had her and, and everything was great. I mean, the delivery was great. She didn't have to go to the NICU. I mean, everybody was just amazed at her health and how strong she was and her color and man, as new parents, that's one thing you really worry about when you're in that delivery room is, Lord, please give me a healthy baby. We can deal with any other problems, but Lord, just give me a healthy baby. And the Lord did that. We were able to take Bailey home in just a, you know, about the average time. We were in the car, we were on our way home, and, and uh, we got home, and everything was great. And about a day or two later, we got a phone call. And this phone call was rather unexpected. And um, they said, your daughter Bailey, during her blood screening, has uh, her blood work has come up abnormal. And, you know, we didn't really know what to think. We're very new at this whole baby having thing. And uh, we're also very new at the whole baby medical term thing. And, and they just said, There's an, what your daughter has screened abnormal for is a, a thing called fatty acid disorder. And, you know, what does that mean? Who knows? Uh, and... But when you tell parents who have just had a baby a few days ago that there's something abnormal about their child, boy, you've got to figure something out quick. And, and I promise you, this is how the phone call went. Your child has been screened. Her blood work came up abnormal. We're going to schedule something in another two weeks, but you just need to feed her every four hours. It's called this, and we'll, we'll take care of it. But it is a serious issue. And they spoke to my wife, and you can imagine telling a mother that. They're, 
mothers would not have the capability to reason at that point. And, and that's not saying that women don't reason. I'm just saying emotions overtook my wife. And, you know, I'm, I'm like, well, what did they say when you asked them this? I didn't ask because she was just so overwhelmed by the moment and that phone call. And so all we really had was the name of the, the disorder. And she was even having trouble remembering that. But we did some Google searching, obviously. Isn't that what you would do as well? You just start looking on the Internet because that's obviously the right answer. If your doctor's not going to tell you, you've got to figure out some way. And, uh, and uh, we looked it up. And, and uh, it's a very serious issue. And um, it, was, it was tough to hear and tough to read. Um, ultimately, it can be handled through uh, dietary help and other things like that. But if untaken care of... Uh, there's a chance it could lead to death. And now all we have is this phone call, this website telling us there's a chance our daughter can die, and now we have to wait two weeks to hear anything from any doctors. Whew, that was rough. And boy, I tell you what, I needed some deliverance at that point. Well, then a few weeks go by, and me and my wife are just living life, kind of going through times, and You know, we're just trying to get by until this next appointment. We come home one afternoon. On a Monday afternoon, we open. Well, my wife drove down our driveway, and our door was standing wide open. And uh, she walked in, and she immediately called me, and she said, you're not going to like this phone call. And obviously, my my heart just kind of dropped. I was like, did something happen to you? Were you in a car wreck? What happened? She said, we've been broken into and they've taken everything. And about three, four weeks ago now, uh, the total was about $10,000 worth of stuff they took. They took guns. They took my bow and arrow. They took TVs, gaming stations, anything with any value to computers. They took, uh, they cleaned us out. And I tell you, I needed some great deliverance. And then we finally had the chance to go to Bailey's appointment to sit across from this doctor, and she began to explain some things to us. And she said, now, the test that we're going to have to run to confirm whether or not your daughter has these things uh, are rather expensive. One's about $3,000. The good news is your insurance has already approved that test, but we don't know how much they're willing to pay on it. So... We can do the test today, but you're just going to be mailed whatever they don't pay. Oh, how kind. And then she said the second test we would like to do today is a $3,500 test, and your insurance has not approved that test. But it's the only way to conclusively prove that your daughter doesn't have this this issue. I'm sitting there, and I said, Doctor, you don't understand. We were just broken into we're probably out $10,000. I'm in conversations with the insurance company right now, but I really don't know what, what the resolution of this is going to be. I don't know. I mean, doctor, really? And I needed some deliverance. Well, we, we talked about it, we prayed about it, and the Lord kind of gave us some peace. We sought counsel, and, you know, we, we, were, you know, we finally got peace about something. We're kind of getting back on our feet. We're, we're on our way to the airport to go out of town last Saturday. Boy, we were excited. My wife was going to see her family. I was going to see one of my very best friends in the world. I enjoy spending time with him. He's an encouragement to me spiritually and, and just relationally. And I was excited about the trip. And, and my wife, she was going to see their family. And 
they've not yet really got to spend time with Bailey, and, and so we were really excited about it. And on the way to the airport, I get a phone call, and they say, sir, this is the fraud department from your credit card or for your debit card. And I said, really? I said, do you just call to wish happy birthday or happy Saturday, or how does this work? And she said, well, let me ask you about a transaction where it's a little suspicious, but we want you to clarify it for us. He said, okay. They said, well, there was a $4 transaction in, uh, I think, um, Keller, Texas, or uh, somewhere uh, in a vending machine. And I go, well, my wife and I, neither one of us have been to Keller recently, so I don't, I don't think that was us. We don't really use that card very often. So, I, no, I don't think that's it. She said, okay, what about um, a, a $380 transaction? I said, why did you start with a $4 transaction? Really? And she said, uh, it's, it was also, is at a Walgreens in, in, in Keller. And I said, ma'am, I was kind of fuzzy about the vending machine one because heavens knows my wife likes Mountain Dew. And she would gladly pay $4 for it at the appropriate time if she really needed it. But I said, ma'am, we have not spent $380 at any Walgreens in our life, much less yesterday. She said, okay, well, um, just let you know you need to call and you just dispute this charge. And, and man, I'm just overwhelmed, right? I mean, there's just a lot of stuff hit me in just a very small amount of time. And, and I understand my problems are not nearly as big as some of the problems you're facing. But I tell you, I needed some great deliverance. My wife came back and informed me about the situation with the pastor's wife. I think in Illinois, broke into their home, and she just happened to be home. She has a one-year-old, and she's pregnant. And the man killed the woman just for burglary. He just, I guess, didn't like, just didn't want to get caught or whatever, and he killed a pregnant lady with a one-year-old standing there watching. tell you, tonight that pastor, her husband needs some deliverance. Yesterday I received a, or two days ago now, I'm sorry if I get emotional, but a few days ago now I received a text message from one of the men in our church. And that text message read and said, Brother Andrew, I uh, coach my son's soccer team and, and one of the kids on my soccer team is five years old. He went in to have his tonsils taken out and he stopped breathing and now he's on life support and has a feeding tube. He has a twin brother. I tell you, they need some deliverance. And I am sure as I stand here tonight, there's people in this room who need some deliverance. I mean, maybe your situation is much bigger than anything I've already mentioned. Maybe it's much smaller but maybe you need some deliverance. If you don't tonight, I am quite sure that you will in the near future. Man, but my God offers that deliverance. My God speaks to me and tells me tonight that he's there watching and he's there waiting to help me. Tonight, my friends, this is a psalm of David. This is a psalm written after his release or his uh, uh, 
of God providing his escape from King Saul, could you imagine the pressure that King David was under as he was fleeing from Saul and he was dealing with problems and he was just overwhelmed. It was an issue he could not handle on on his own. And, And he finally, after God gave him the deliverance, he looks up and he says, all the pressure and all the pain and all the struggles I went through, God gave me deliverance. My friend, it'll be painful sometimes. It'll be a struggle. Life will not always be easy. It will not always be roses. But God offers deliverance. I want to talk to you about that great deliverance tonight. First of all, I want to share with you the great dilemma of trouble. You see, for there to be great deliverance, there has to be a great dilemma. You see, without the Red Sea standing in front of the children of Israel... And without Pharaoh uh, uh, being per, or pursuing the children of Israel from behind, without all the pressures of the moment being trapped in this side and trapped on this side with Pharaoh's army coming up the rear and, and, and they stand blocked off looking at the Red Sea, unless they're in a great dilemma, God could not provide the great deliverance. And if you are in a great dilemma, I I assure you tonight, God has a way of giving you great deliverance. It's an amazing story how David arrives to this point where he's fleeing from King Saul. A long time ago, in in, in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, King Saul is the king. He's the anointed king of Israel. He's the rightful king of Israel. King Saul was a humble man. King Saul was a qualified man. Uh, When Samuel came to select King Saul, Saul looks at him and says, But who am I? I, I'm the least of my father's house. I'm the least of the tribe of Benjamin. And yet he stood head and shoulders above everybody else. If they had to nominate a king, Saul would have been the man. And Saul was so humble and Saul was so willing to follow God's plan. And and God anointed him king through Samuel and And it was Israel setting up a king, but God allowed them to do that. And then one day, uh, King Saul began to get, as we oftentimes do, a little self-sufficient. And Samuel came to Saul and gave him direct orders that he he was to go to Amalek, and he was to destroy the city utterly. He was not to leave any men, children, women, no oxen, no sheep. He was not to spoil the city at all. He was to destroy it utterly because that was God's will for that city. And yet Saul approached the city and and God gave them the victory. But while they were trying to do what God's plan was, some of the things there appealed to them. I mean, these are good oxen and they are good sheep and Why destroy this gold and why burn these valuable things? And so King Saul decides to spoil the city and disobey God's will. He comes back and and Samuel approaches him one day and and he asks, What are you doing, Saul? I I can hear the lowing of the oxen. I, I, I see what you've done. Do you not realize you've disobeyed God's straight command? And Saul kind of plays around, oh, I have sinned, but the people made me do it. In 1 Samuel 15, this is what happened because of Saul's disobedience. 
And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And Samuel saith unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. You see, because of Saul's disobedience, another would be lifted up to be the king. It would not be Saul's lineage, it would not be his son, but it would be another. And Saul was very well aware of this. Now just fast forward a few chapters, they have a problem. They're fighting the Philistines, and this is no new thing. I mean, Israel and Philistia were always fighting one another. But this story was unique because... Philistia had a wild card, somebody they'd been training for a long time, from, from his youth, the Bible says. I mean, he was raised up for this day to stand in the valley and mock Israel and put fear in the bones of every man there. His name was Goliath. And he stands in that valley and he says, I defy the armies of the living God. And he mocks them. And he says, I tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. You send the very best you have, and I'll fight him. And if I beat him, y'all will be my servant. But if you beat me, we will be your servant. Saul was the man who was perfectly qualified to go down there and fight. He was the king. In fact, uh, while no Jew was very big, King Saul stood head and shoulders above everybody else. I mean, if anybody was the champion of Israel at the time, it was Saul, and he should have been the one to go down there, but he didn't. Instead, all of these men stood up there on the ridge looking down at the valley as this man mocks the God of Israel, the one living God, and they all shuddered with fear, shaking in their boots. I liked how the Bible put it this morning. His knees knocked together. <laughs> That's what they were doing. They were scared to death. And there was just this boy who came to deliver some food to his brothers. And this was not the first time that David and Saul had met. I, I, I would remind you that he had already played his harp for King Saul. And so I'm sure Saul's uh, uh, perception of David was not one of strength and honor. He's a harp player. What does that say about him? And, and, and David look, looks at his brother, Eliab, his older brother, and he says, what are you doing, Eliab? Man, you're strong. Come on, man. We can take this guy. And Eliab says, man, you better shut your mouth, David. You don't know what you're talking about. And David's other brother stand on that hillside, and, and, and David's like, what is to happen to the man who can defeat this man? They say, well, there would be a lot of reward for him. Man, I tell you, it would be a good life if somebody could do that. I mean, if we had somebody like that, but we just don't have anybody like that. And David's like, we've got God. So he goes to King Saul and he says, King Saul, I want to be the one to fight Goliath. I'll do it. And King Saul says, look, harp player. I mean, come on, you're a musician. You're a lover, not a fighter. I mean, you make people feel good. You don't decapitate them. And David says, no, you don't understand. I, I believe that. I can do this. I believe God's going to use this. God's going to give us this victory. King Saul, let me go down and fight. And King Saul says, well, I guess we don't have any other options because I'm not going. And King Saul fits him with armor. You know the story. Fits him with armor, and David says, well, I've not proved all this stuff. I mean, it may look good on you, but King Saul, I'm not really trusting in myself on this deal. I'm going to go down there in the strength of God. And he goes down there with what God had prepared him with. And 
And God gave David the victory that day. And while there was a great victory happened that day, there was also something bad that happened that day. Because David came back into town with the head of Goliath, and, and everybody was pretty excited about the victory. I mean, they had just beaten the champion. I mean, this was their Rocky Balboa, and they just took him down. And David walks into town with that head, and, and some of the women, you know, they got together and created a cheer squad. And they said, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Everybody was excited about the victory. Man, what a battle. What, what a victory. The only problem was King Saul didn't much like that cheer. He didn't like the fact that everybody was congratulating David and everybody was, I mean, after all, it was Saul's decision to let him go down, right? I mean, that's, you know that's how Saul thought about it. And Saul it had to eat him alive that this little heart-playing fruitcake, pardon the French, uh, is going to go down there and defeat Goliath when all the while he was the one qualified. And now he's the one getting all the honor. And may I remind you, you don't think in the back of his mind this, that... Samuel's promise is already ringing in his ear and hath given it to thy neighbor who is better than you. You don't think that's already playing in Saul's mind? And said, he, he, you know he was on lookout. Well, is it going to be this strong man? Is it going to be this strong man? Now he sees the heart of Israel being applied to David. And, and I'm sure at this moment he, well, the Bible says from that day on he eyed David. Every day he watched him, seeing the success and the prosperity that God was giving him. Then what happens after that is Goliath or, or Saul kind of takes David in, kind of uh, gives him some jobs, makes him a, promotes him in, in, in the army there, and and uh, one day he David's success finally eats away at King Saul, and Saul just happens to have a javelin handy, and you can learn why God didn't choose him to go fight Goliath because his aim wasn't too good. And he took that javelin and he says, I will kill David myself. And he throws that javelin at David and David flees. This happened once, this happened twice. It gets to the point where Saul is so dead set on capturing and killing David, he throws a javelin at his own son because he's in league with David. He goes and he's trying to hunt David down. And David had gotten assistance from, from, from some priests. And he's hunting him down. And Saul happens to these priests and begins to question them. And he said, yeah, David was through here. And he, and he, and he ate the showbread and he, he took the sword of Goliath. And, and Saul is so enraged by their assistance of David, he kills the priests. He's thrown religion out the door. He's thrown responsibility out the door. Man, he's not even the king of Israel anymore. He just has the title. His whole goal in life is to track David down and kill him. Chapter after chapter, it's Saul coming close to capturing David and David barely evading. Can you imagine the pressure that David was under? I mean, if President Obama tonight found out that you were doing something wrong and it became his personal mission in the world to track you down, how hard would it be to find you? 
I'll say this, I was in a place that had absolutely no reception last week and my GPS tracker worked just fine. Explain that to me. I don't really think that if our king or our president began to try to track you down, and that was his one mission, and he put all these economic conventions on the side, and he put his handicap on the side, and and he kind of put everything on Paul's just to track you down, I really don't think that he would have much trouble. And no matter how hard you ran, no matter what you tried to do to hide, I've got a feeling he could track you down. That's what David was dealing with. King Saul was not limited on his resources. He had the very best of the day to try and track David down. He had 3,000 men at his beck and call waiting to kill David whenever he found him. Can you imagine the pressure that David was under? I, I I would submit to you tonight that he's probably a little overwhelmed. In fact, you can read it in the Psalms that he speaks about this moment in his life. He has no answer for it. And yet we get to the end of the chapter, and when he's looking back on the story, he clearly sees God's hand of movement upon his life. And he says, God hath given me a great deliverance. I want to encourage you tonight, if you have a great dilemma, and no doubt many of us do, there's a God who truly will help you. And you're not wasting his time for he takes pleasure in helping his seed. That's what the Bible says. And you are his anointed. You are his child. And a good father will want to help his children. And I just believe tonight, no matter how great the dilemma, I look all across this room and just from my position, I know of issues and problems that are tearing away and eating at people. I spoke to several people before the service of issues that they have and problems and dilemmas that they have. My friend, never lose heart. God is in control. And God will give you the deliverance, my friend. Oh, he's a good God. I'm so thankful for him. Secondly, I want to share with you tonight, there's not only a great dilemma of trouble, there's also a great dedication of trust. Now, in all of this, in in the several chapters, I would estimate there's probably eight or nine chapters of Saul just constantly hunting down David. In all of this, did you know that David is given the opportunity two different times to kill Saul? I want you to take your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter number 24. Now this is a very, very interesting study if you ever take time to do it. But there's a time when David is given the opportunity to take matters into his own hands. See, that's what Saul has done this entire time. He's taken matters into his own hands, and they are progressively festering and getting worse. But 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse number 3 says, and this is Saul hunting down David, And he came to the sheepcoats, by the way, where was a cave. And Saul went in to cover his feet, and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. So to paint this illustration vividly in your mind, Saul's worn out. He's exhausted from traveling all day. I mean, he is on a manhunt, and he's tired. And so what Saul does, I'm sure, is he sends all those 3,000 men. He says, okay, you guys keep looking. You three or four men come with me, and I'm going to go into this cool cave, and I'm going to lay down for a little bit. And so 
Everybody's searching, looking for footprints, looking for broken twigs. And these three or four men are there to protect King Saul if at any point somebody were to happen up to kill him. Well, the only issue is they didn't check the cave before King Saul went in. And as funny as this story is, King Saul goes in feeling all safe and cozy, and here's David hiding behind a rock in the back of the cave saying, Can you believe this? He's right there. And all of David's men are saying, David, 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 this is going to end all your problems. You'll be the king. And I will remind you, King David has already been anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel. He is the rightful heir to the throne. And all King David has to do is eliminate the one man standing in his way. Verse number four. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, now you probably had to whisper because he's right there. Behold, the day of which the Lord hath said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall be good unto thee. David, you can do it. You can take matters in your own hands. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. So this is how it goes. They're all cheering David. David, David, David. And David, this is my knife, this white microphone here. Just imagine it's sharp. Okay. And David's sneaking over. And as he gets closer, they say, David, David, David. And they're getting more excited. And they're getting more excited. And David raises up his knife. And they're, David, David. And then he cuts his skirt and goes back to the back of the cave. They're like, well, that was anticlimactic. David, what are you doing? David sneaks over and gets within striking distance of the man who he's supposed to kill. And they say, David, you've got this. David, you can do it. David cuts his skirt. Verse number five. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off the Saul's skirt. And that's a very interesting Bible study if you ever want to do it. Verse number six. And he said unto his men, listen, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master. The Lord's anointed. To stretch forth mine hand against him seeing he is the anointed of the Lord? David says, how can I take matters into my own hands? This was time number one. Now take your Bible just two chapters later, chapter number 26. If David had not already shown his absolute trust in the Lord's will for his life, now he's given another opportunity. And you know what he could have said? Well, I already offered up. I've already passed up the opportunity once. God gave it to me again, right? Don't we like to blame God for things sometimes? Well, if God put the door here, I might as well walk into it. Like, well, if drugs are here, I might as well do it. It's terrible reasoning. God doesn't open every door. Look, if, if a job opens up in Wisconsin, that's not always God's will just because it's a 50-cent raise. And, and, and David's given another opportunity, and he could have very well said, oh, this is God's will. I passed it up once, and I missed God's will two chapters ago, but I'm going to take advantage of it now. Chapter number 26, verse number 3. And Saul pitched in the hill of Hekilah 
uh, which is before Jeshimon, by the way. But David abode in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul was come in very deed. And David arose and came to the place where Saul had pitched, and David beheld the place where Saul lay. And Abner the son of Ner, the captain of his host, and Saul lay in the trench, and the people pitched round about him. Then answered David and said unto Ahimelech the Hittite, and Abishai the son of Zeruiah, brother of Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul to the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with thee. In other words, Abishai is like, well, I'm not going to miss this. I've stuck with you this long, King David. I want to see the end of this thing. And then uh, verse number seven, so David and Abishai came to the people by night. And behold, Saul lay sleeping within the trench and his spear stuck in the ground at uh, uh, at his bolster. But Abner and the people lay round about him. Now they all fall asleep. Then said Abishai to David. God hath delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. David, you've got it again. God's done this for you again. Uh, and, and now, therefore, let me smite him, I pray thee, with a spear even to the earth at once, and I will not smite him the second time. And David said to Abishai, Destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, Now pay attention. Furthermore, as the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him. Or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed, but I pray thee, take thou now his spirit that is at his bolster in the cruise of water, and let us go. Abishai looks at David and says, David, we finally, we snuck in here, all these people round about Saul, and we, we snuck in through all of them. We had to tiptoe over some dude. One dude was snoring. We knocked over some pots and pans, but a snoring covered the noise. We finally get right here to Saul, and Abishai looks over to David and says, David, the Lord's, God's delivered him right now. Let me do it. And David says, not a chance. You can't destroy him. And I can't destroy him. It's the Lord's anointing. And Abishai looks at the spear stuck in the ground right beside Saul. He's like, but David, all I, all I have to <laughs> David. David says, how could I lift up my hand against the Lord's anointing? Hey, Abishai, learn this lesson and learn it well. If I've got a problem, the Lord will take care of it. Whew. That's faith. I'm talking about most of the issues we deal with are financial, they're, they're, they're family, they, they're a temporary, they, they're struggles. David was fighting for his life. And he could trust God with every bit of it. I have no doubt there are people in this room tonight dealing with dilemmas. But I also have no doubt that those same people struggling with dilemmas are trying to handle them on their own. 
and you're searching and you're constantly looking for a resolution and you're seeking resolution through advice of friends and you're seeking through resolution through Google searches and trying to find answers to problems that you just don't have and, and you just don't know the way out and, and you look at the situation and say, but if I only had a little bit more experience, if I only knew just a little bit more, if somebody could help me, if I, if I could just get through this one little problem, then, then I'd be on the backside and it'd always be smooth selling. You know what I've noticed? Problems come in bulk. And you think that you're past one, and guess what? Another one hits you. And dilemmas always come. But would to God we would be like David and have the faith and say, let me just let God take care of it. You know what I've noticed in my short Christian life? God's solutions are always better than our resolutions. Always. We, we think that we have problems worked out, and yet when we get on the backside of the problem, we look at how our, our solution would have led to disaster and how God's solution and His grace got us through miraculously. It's amazing to me how often we like to take control of our own problems. Now, many of you are baseball fans. I just recently became one. Uh, through the World Series runs a few years ago of the Texas Rangers. I used to go to ball games, and I was familiar with some of the more star-type players. Um, you know, I knew, like, Pudge Rodriguez and Juan Gonzalez. Obviously, I knew about Nolan Ryan. My dad brought me home a signed baseball of Nolan Ryan, and, and uh, he hid it from me, so I still, to this day, have no idea where it is, but it's totally mine. And uh, <laughs> totally mine. I've never seen it, uh, but it's, surely it's mine. Uh, no, he showed it to me, but he did. He had his other sons went out and played with a signed football by some professional football player. So he didn't want me to get the idea that Nolan Ryan's fastball would help me be like Nolan Ryan. So uh, he just wanted to keep it in his little trophy case there. That's fine. And uh, but I, I had heard of Nolan Ryan. I mean, who in Texas does not respect Nolan Ryan? I mean, the guy was amazing, right? If you know anything about Nolan Ryan, he threw seven no hitters, and those are. Ex- extraordinarily rare. Um, Most pitchers that play professional baseball never even come close to getting one. Only the top-level guys actually succeed at getting one, and Nolan Ryan had seven of them. The guy was uh, amazing. His fastball was incredible. He came in as this uh, wild-armed, right-handed pitcher who could throw over 100 miles an hour. And back then, that was absurd. That, that was unheard of. Nolan Ryan could do it with consistency, and he could do it with, for nine innings. And the batters were literally scared to death of the guy because one pitch would be down at your toes, and the next pitch would be at your nose. His last no-hitter, he was 44 years old. 44. In order to pitch a no-hitter, you have to pitch every out of the ball game. So nine innings, three outs an inning. He had to get 27 batters out at least. Nolan Ryan, at 44 years old, consistently that day threw a fastball 96 miles an hour at what most people consider over the hill. <laughs> 96. That day he threw a four-seam fastball, which is generally a faster fastball. It's straighter, about 96 miles an hour. He threw a sinking fastball, 93 miles an hour, 
consistently. His curveball that day was 82 miles an hour, and it was a, a, a 12 to 6 breaking ball. And a lot of guys have kind of like a, a, a slide to their curveball. Nolan Ryan's broke from 12 on the clock to 6 on the clock. So it would start at your eyes and end at the bottom of the strike zone. Guys were baffled all day. He threw a changeup that averaged about 86 miles an hour. He was a four-pitch pitcher, and nobody could touch him. He made those guys look foolish. I watched it today. It was amazing what he could do. Now, if you gave me the exact same baseball he used that day, I could not throw one pitch 96 miles an hour. In fact, the fastest I've ever thrown any ball was 81 miles an hour at the Rangers game, and I felt like my arm went with it. <laughs> I, I know vaguely how to th- grip certain pitches. I could grip every pitch he threw that day, but that does not mean I could get the result he got that day. And if I face the exact same lineup of hitters that he faced, there's no doubt I would have never gotten an out. But Nolan Ryan was just better than me. He had trained for years. It was his job. It was his life. He knew every pitch that he could throw. He knew how to throw it in which location so that that batter could not hit that pitch in that location. It was amazing to see him work. And if you had to choose a pitcher for your team, who would you choose between me and Nolan Ryan? I mean, y'all like me, right? I mean, I look like I... No, I don't. Okay. If you had to choose, the choice is pretty obvious, right? I mean, plus you'll get a stake out of the deal. He owns a slaughterhouse or something like that. Look, the choice is easy, right? He's exceptionally better at his craft than I am. Then why is it so difficult when the choice is us handling our problem or God handling? He is exceptionally better at that. In fact, he deals in the problem-solving business. The most royal screw-up of all eternity was when Adam and Eve took of the fruit. You know what God did? He found a solution for that. And yet sometimes we trust ourselves. And, and even now you're sitting in your seat saying, how foolish is that? Well, aren't we all guilty of it, though? We look for resolutions. We look for possible solutions. But at the end of the day, God is always the right answer. And like David, all of our friends may be encouraging us, oh, you can take care of this. There's the door. I think it would be good for us to say, God, I want you to handle this and hand it over to him. A great dedication of trust. Finally, I want you to see this, a great deliverance and triumph. King David now in verse number 15. I can't even wait to share with you some of the verses in the upcoming weeks out of this chapter. The reason we're starting at the end is because I had to somehow give you the background information of all that was going on, and David kind of sums it all up. I was trying to think of titles for this series and sermon, and and I just didn't have anything. I got to verse 50, and, and David says, Great deliverance giveth he to his king. And the culmination of all the emotions that David felt, all the sorrow, 
all the heartache, all the concern, all the indecision, he finally comes to this conclusion. God's deliverance is a great one. I know there are problems in your life. See, the way I picture it is, we always look at people in the world and we say, boy, it seems like their life is so easy. Well, that's because they're walking according to the course of this world. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 teaches us. In other words, it's kind of like a river. The course of the world is flowing this way. And all the people in the world are flowing with it. But Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we have been redeemed and that we have been risen up to sit with Christ in heavenly places. So what happens to us at the point of salvation is no longer do we walk with the course of the world... What do we do? We make an about face. Now, we've not left the world. And everybody is going that way. And the reason life seems easier for them is because it is. Our goal and our prize is Jesus Christ standing on the banks of the river. Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, calling us and summoning us, saying, live the life I've called you to live. Be the person I've called you to be. Look to me and live. And the Bible says, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And it's Jesus summoning us and calling us, saying, get your eyes on me. Don't look at all the, 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 the current. Don't look at all the problems. Look at me. And he offers a great deliverance. I like how the Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 22, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all them that trust in him. Job chapter 23 puts it this way, But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. All you have to do is know that God's not punishing you. God's helping you. God's trying to make you better than you've ever been before. And while the current may seem overwhelming, and sometimes you may even feel you're drowning, I remember the story of Peter looking at Jesus. He immediately takes his eyes off Jesus. What happens as a result of his eyes off Jesus? He begins to sink. Never forget what Jesus did. He did not say, Peter, get back up. Peter, you know the solution. Peter, you, you, know how to, you know how to get back on your feet. No, he reached down his hand and he pulled Peter up. Sometimes we feel like when we get off the rails a little bit or like we felt a little bit, it's like God's summoning us, get back on your feet, attention, huh? you know. No, but no, he's there with hand outstretched waiting to pull us up. Boy, he gave many great deliverance in the Bible. I think of the Hebrew children in an apostate society. Everybody around them was bowing down to a wicked king and an image, both of which uh, you know had to just uh, eat at them that they were in that place and that they were dealing with those things. And you know why they were there? Because they were the most gifted of all. And now because of the talents that God's given them, because of the faith that God has given them, they have to deal with problems that other people don't have to deal with. 
And now a king says, at the time that you hear the music, you're going to bow down to my image. The music begins to play, and all those... Uh, may I remind you, there were more than just Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel in that town that were Hebrew. And there were only three men that stood on this particular day, and I have no doubt if Daniel had been standing there with them, he would have been standing. But all the other Hebrew children bowed down. All the other uh, uh, Babylonians bowed down because it was the king's decree. Everyone bowed down to the image because that's what the king said. And they were in the world, so they had to be a part of the world. King Nebuchadnezzar glories in everybody obeying his word. I can imagine he worked his way from the left of the crowd looking at all his subjects. Everybody bowed to him. But there's a problem in the back. There's three men not bowed. And I like how they approach them and they say, we're going to give you another chance at this. I don't think you know who you're dealing with. They say, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter, O king. It doesn't matter what you want to do to us. We cannot bow down to your image because we are children of God. We are servants of God. We're not going to do what you're asking us to do. And I love their faith. They said, we may die in this decision but we're not going to do what you ask us to do. King Nebuchadnezzar's heart is so infuriated by everything going on, he turns the furnace up. You know the story. The, the strongest men in his kingdom, that's how angry he was. He was like, oh, we're not going to have the weaklings do this. Hey, you, because you bench press 300 pounds, and you, because you uh, can jump higher, and you, be, the very best in my kingdom, you escort them and throw them in. And I, love, I just love the Bible He loses the very best he had because he got angry. And the men that throw them into the fire, they die. And uh, the king stands up there, I'm sure, kind of happy, kind of glorying that his only problem, he did this in front of everybody. Everybody saw him take care of this issue. And then his eyes kind of fixate on something in the flame. And he said, um... Huddle. (laughs) Gather around, everyone. Did we not throw three men into the fire? Oh, yes, O king. You showed them. Well, and why do I see four men in the fire? Loosed and walking around, and the fourth has the image of the Son of God. My God works in great deliverances and triumph. The Red Sea crossing, not only did God split the waters, he made the ground dry. They didn't even get mud on their boots as they were going across. That's how complete God's deliverances are. Everybody has just enough time to get across. And Pharaoh's army says, charge into the Red Sea. And not only does God give them deliverance, he takes care of the dilemma when the waters go, ha! Kills Pharaoh and all his army. My God works in great deliverances. You say, Brother Andrew, those are just Bible stories. 
Sure, they happened a long time ago, but God doesn't work like that now. It was about a week, maybe two weeks ago now, Brother Sean came into my office, Brother Sean Ogden, he said, the doctors just informed my brother that he has cancer. And obviously, you know how cancer is. I mean, as soon as you hear that word, I mean, there's not really any question to ask after that. I mean, your immediate thought is, and you want to be kind when you say this, how serious is it? Right? I mean, I mean, are we talking about a death cancer? Are we talking about, like, you know, is this problem solvable? And Sean told me, we, we don't really know that much. We just know that doctors found cancer. He said he's going in in a few weeks, and they're going to do surgery on him. A couple weeks later, Brother Sean comes into my office, and he says, well, he obviously asked us to pray for everybody in the office. I think he even made an announcement publicly that, we should pray. And uh, he said, the doctors are being really strange about this. He was going in to have surgery, and they called him on the way there, and they said that uh, they weren't going to do surgery, but they wanted to check him out again to see if the cancer has spread so that they don't go in and then remove the little bit they thought was there and then find out there's more in there. So he goes in for a secondary checkup. Brother Sean comes into the office one day, and he says, They said there's no cancer. He said, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it seems like the doctors would know before they would say something like that. They wouldn't just scare you. But they say that they cannot find the cancer that was there just a few weeks ago. You say God doesn't work like that anymore? Maybe, just maybe, God's still working like that, just people aren't trusting him like that. I, I don't know. I, I know there are great dilemmas. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, with as many people that are in this room tonight, you're thinking, man, my husband and I, we're just not getting along like we used to. You think my teenagers, they just don't seem to respect us anymore. We're trying to live the life. We're trying to be the parents, but they just... They're just such a headache. Some of you are saying, we've tried managing our money. We've tried giving to the Lord. We've tried being good stewards of our money. It just seems like there's holes in our bags and we can't figure out why. Like, I don't know the dilemma, but I know a God who works in great deliverance. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 41, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Look, there's promises all throughout this book. You got problems? He's got answers. And you may have great dilemmas, but I know a God who's got great deliverance.